we're starting a new series this weekend on the Oikos, uh, four weeks, and tonight we have a guest speaker, uh, Pastor Monsignor Tom Mercer is going to be uh, up here speaking, and uh, we've got uh, these books that we are reading through as we do this series. If you do not yet have one of these books, we've got a, a kiosk in the back, and I would encourage you to get one of these and, and read through it, because we're going to kind of work through it in the series uh, they're 10 bucks, and if you don't have 10 bucks for the book, we want you to take one anyways. Uh, if you've got 20 bucks for the book, that's great too. Um, and you can just, this is the way we usually do it. Some people put in more, some put in less, and we usually end up just about right. But definitely get one of these books and read the first four chapters. They're pretty short, they're pretty easy. Um, this week, if you are not in a grow group at Gateway, I want to encourage you to think about getting in one. Um, and you can go to the grow group kiosk after the service and you can get signed up for just four weeks during this series. We'd really encourage you to do that if you're not in a group to give it a try, answer your phone, and get all that stuff done. <laughs> and uh, never fail. <laughs> and uh, anyways, um, so books. Grow Groups, and uh, Tom, it's just a huge honor to have you here this weekend. I love Tom, love his ministry. Let's welcome him up here. Thank you. Are we good? You can hear me and make sure I push the right button. I love Bob Barnes, so we have something in common already. I uh, have been blessed to know Bob and and to, to serve uh, God with Bob a couple of times over the years, but it's been a long time since we've had the privilege of uh, doing something like this together. And so uh, I'm as honored as anybody in the room. My wife Cheryl and I are blessed to be with you. We've had a good talk already with your staff team last night, some of your leaders today, and now we get you guys for a few minutes uh, Cheryl, my wife, and I have been married for 30 years. We have three grown children, all married, living in different places. And uh, we have um, three grandchildren and, and one uh, grandchild on the way. So we're like, you know, almost to four grandkids. And people look at Cheryl and I and they wonder, you know, how, uh, how we ended up together because she doesn't look old enough to be a grandma. I don't think anybody's ever told me I don't look old enough to be a grandfather, but... Uh, you might look at Cheryl and I and say, you guys have been married 30 years, really? And uh, it's, it's true. And, and so a lot of folks think she's my daughter, but everybody walks away thinking I'm rich. So <laughs> it's all that matters as far as I'm concerned. I'm just so glad to be here. You know, we, we talk about Oikos, and I know you're going to begin a real uh, long consideration for like the next month. You're going to get sick of the word. Uh, but it is a great word. It's a Greek word. And for those of you that might not know yet, it means everybody you do life with. And some of the people that you do life with are believers. Some are believers walking with God. Some have taken a break with that. They know Christ because they met Him earlier in their lives, but for whatever reason, they have disconnected from the church and they need to renew that passion that they once had for Jesus. And then there are people in your oikos who don't know Christ. The Bible would describe them as pagans. And we have the opportunity uh, to be a light in, in their lives. And the whole idea about oikos is to focus 
on that part of the world that God gave you. Because you can't change the, the world globally. You're probably not ever going to have that much influence. But He's given you a piece of the action. He's given you anywhere from 8 to 15 people, supernaturally and strategically placed them around you. And I believe that is the purpose of every believer, discover who is on that list for them, for you, for me. We all share different relational worlds or have different relational worlds. Sometimes some of those people we share, but for the most part, belongs to me. And because I know Christ, they now have the opportunity to know Him too. As God uses me, His Spirit empowers me, and I have a chance to share His love with those people. And that's what it means to live an oikocentric life. Uh, we at High Desert Church have what we have described now for a couple of decades as an oikocentric church because we are incredibly focused on preparing people to only do one thing, and that's to become better at reaching out to their 8 to 15. And that really is all we do. Other than that, it's a pretty boring place to be. But if you ever come down to the high desert of SoCal, feel free to stop by, and I think you will enjoy uh, the fellowship that we share, and we'd be glad to share it with you, much like you're sharing your fellowship uh, with us uh, this evening. Uh, what I'd like to do is to take you to 1 John. I really don't know what you guys need to hear because I don't know you that well. But 1 John is always a great place to start. And if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 1, one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. And we're going to break that open uh, this evening and see if there's something there that we could, we could gain in uh, terms of encouragement. Whenever I, I speak, and everybody seems to know that my deal is oikos, I've, I'm not an expert in oikos, I'm not an expert in much of anything, but I am an ambassador for the idea uh, you're reading a book that we put together a few years ago. It's not the best book you're ever going to read, but in my opinion, it does contain the greatest idea you'll ever read about. And if you can get a hold of that idea, I do think it will unlock um, the Christian life at a level you've never experienced before and bring an energy to your life that you may have missed for, for quite a long time. Um, but anyway, I, I, I was at, I'm, I'm asked often, you know, if, if I speak at another church to another congregation or if somebody asks me to come to a conference and speak, they say, well, just speak on a passage in the Bible that is an oikos passage. And I, you know, I'm, I, I'm more gracious than I'm going to sound right now uh, in my response, but there are no non-oikocentric passages in the Bible. And when you get this idea, it changes the way you even read the Bible. Because all of a sudden you say, wow, that's, that's all about oikos, even though the word isn't mentioned in the passage. And I think you'll see that. One of the reasons why I see that tonight, one of the reasons why I chose this passage is because you've all heard it. And you've all read it. And I say all. I, I would imagine that there are some in here this might be new information. But for the most part, it's just a, a real popular text. And if you've been a Christian for very many years, you've probably heard different pastors, maybe Bob, maybe uh, somebody else, teach on the subject. But when, what you'll see tonight is that it's all about oikos. And, and that might be the piece to the puzzle that you've missed in the past. Uh, years ago, I, I saw a cartoon. I really liked the cartoon. It, it's uh, a guy who's 
who's driving up to a church that is, you know, trying to make the Christian life about as easy as you can possibly make the Christian life. And, and he pulls up as a drive through church, and, and he says, I'll take two choruses, three hymns, one prayer, and one sermon. Hold the conviction, please. And people tend to look for a church uh, that can meet their needs, that can do for them what uh, they want, so that they can sit there and listen to compelling messages and hear, you know, great worship as, as we've already shared together this evening. And, and, and it's all about us. It's all about me. You know, what can I get out of the fellowship? And I think what we're going to discover uh, this evening is what the purpose of the church actually is. And it's not about you. And it's not about me. You know what, you guys? It's about us. There is a reason why we come together as a congregation. And, and certainly this group is a very dynamic group. It's a great group. It's a great place to live. It's like green here. That's new to us. We, it's like absolute shock coming from the desert and landing in Portland, Oregon. That's just so weird to us. But it's beautiful, even though it's raining. We never get rain. This is great. You don't like it, we love it. And uh, so thanks for putting on a great show for us. But when you come together in Washougal and when the good people at High Desert Church come together in the high desert down there in Southern California, I tell you what, there's a good reason to be together. And it's all about the fellowship as long as you understand what the word fellowship means. So that's what this is about. Let's read together. If you have your Bibles, let's read together chapter 1, verse 1 through 7 of uh, John's first letter, 1 John. And he said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've, we've seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Obviously, a reference to the life of Christ. And we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, that God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Now, John is an interesting guy. Uh, one of the first official followers of Christ. I grew up in a wealthy family. Had an older brother named James, dad named Zebedee. Very successful fishing franchise. It's not the Columbia River, but the Sea of Galilee was, you know, about as good as it got for fisher uh, families. Fisher men, fisher women, they have fisher families. And the Zebedee family was very successful. He's a wealthy kid. He grew up a privileged kid. Owned a home in Jerusalem, which was kind of weird. That many was, was pretty wealthy. He was hooked up with a high priest, actually. He was able to watch firsthand the trials of Jesus, whereas the other disciples had to wait outside. He had access because he was politically hooked up. So this is the guy that wrote this. 
And when he came to the point in his life where he writes what he writes here, an incredible transformation has occurred. And he speaks confidently. He speaks as if he knows something. It's not his opinion. It's beyond an opinion. It's a conviction. It's a conviction about who Jesus is. Now, I grew up in a modern world. Many of you did too because your hairline is pretty close to mine. A lot of you guys didn't. You young people haven't grown up in a modern world. When I say modern, I'm not talking about a style of furniture, you know, how you decorate your living room. I'm not talking about what's hip or what's recent. Modernism is a worldview. And modernism teaches that truth is discovered through science, through looking at evidence before making a judgment. And so when it came to discovering spiritual truth, my generation thrived on books like Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Some of you guys know that book, and we got so geeked up about that book, we were glad he wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Volume 2, because we couldn't get enough of it. It was refreshing to know that there were objective, logical reasons to place our faith in Christ. But a lot of you young people didn't grow up in a modern environment. You grew up in a world or are growing up in a world we call post-modernism. And your generation's quest for truth is different than my generation's quest for truth. Because you're not as interested in objectivity as my generation is. It's not so much what's objective, but what's intuitive. It's not what you know, it's what you think. There's this pervasive attitude in our culture today that says no one belief system is really right. We just have a whole bunch of systems, a whole bunch of religions, a whole bunch of idealistic ideas, and they are all right enough so that someone or some group can find their own truth. And if you choose to follow one of those ideas, we're happy for you. But we may choose a different form of truth. And so we talk about certainty. You know, John, when he wrote 1 John, he used the two Greek words that would be translated to know in the English 36 different times. Which means as you read 1 John, for every two and a half to three verses, he says, I know this is true. (laughs) But today, it's precisely that confidence that we have as believers that is getting us into trouble. Because knowledge is not something this generation is interested in. They only want to hear about ideas. And we've been marginalized because of our certainty. Uh, I told you we had three grown kids and and two older daughters and uh, our only begotten son is our youngest and now he's, you know, 25 or 24, 25, whatever he is, I don't don't know, but I I lost track a while back. And um, when he was a little guy, he's just a little guy. He's probably like three years old. And he came into my office and he said, Daddy, the girls won't let me play with them. You know, and I was busy and I said, oh, okay, well, what are they playing? He said, they're playing house. 
And I said, well, Drew, you don't want to play house anyway. I mean, don't you want to play something else? And he said, no, Daddy, I'm really bored. And I said, oh, okay. So I went in, and sure enough, there were his two older sisters, and they were like uh, one and a half years and then four years older than him. And they're in their room, and they're playing house. And I said, girls, what are you doing? I said, we're playing house. And I said, well, your brother would like to play with you. And they said, uh, we don't want him to play house with us. And I, I said, well, I'm not sure I want to play house with you either, but he's bored, and so what I'd really like is to at least get you guys to include him in your plans. And they said, oh, okay. I said, I don't care what you do. Just play with him. Just include him. He's, he's your brother, and, you know, be nice. And they said, okay. They gave me assurance that they would do that, and so I went back to what I was doing. I, was doing. I came back about an hour later, and there is our son, Drew, and he's like on all fours sitting outside their bedroom door, and the door is closed, and he's just sitting there. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm playing house with the girls. And I said, well, what are you? He said, I'm the dog. <laughs> and, I, and I wanted to give the girls a raise in their allowance just for ingenuity. I mean, how do you, how do you include your brother in, in what you're doing and please your father at the same time? That's, that's really, uh, uh, that, was, that was very good. But I, I think of Drew at times when I think of what the church seems to have become in our culture. There was a day when we had a seat of privilege. There was a day when our politicians thought like we thought. There was a day when people cared what the Christian church was all about before they, even though they weren't believers, made their plans for the future of a state or a community or a country. And those days are over now because we've been marginalized. John Wesley put it this way. He said, just set yourself on fire. Go into society and let them watch you burn. And you know what? That's always been God's strategy. When Israel lived in captivity, that was God's strategy. When Daniel and his friends were deported into a pagan Chaldean environment, hundreds of miles away from their homeland, that was God's strategy. When the church was rejected in Jerusalem and had no official role to play in society, that was God's strategy. The church seems to be at her best when we're the least popular. When we don't have that seat of privilege that we try to attain. Christianity has been, for the better part of my lifetime, a pretty hip part of our culture. And now we seem to be on the outside looking in. Just like it was when John wrote this letter. You know, for years we've wanted to vote America to righteousness rather than lead America to righteousness. And you can vote and sit on the sidelines. I'm not saying don't vote. You should vote. I'm not saying you shouldn't be involved in the political process as the Lord would lead you. You go for it. You go, son. You go, girl. It's great. We'll cheer you on, encourage you, and vote for you. But so many believers vote and then sit on the sidelines. They'd rather do that because disengaging from their relational world is easier than engaging it. And when all you want to do is kind of pull yourself out of a culture and then lob grenades of criticism into it, you will eventually be marginalized. And then the church simply becomes an exclusive retreat where we can complain about what goes on all around us. 
and we hunker down and we try to survive until next week. But you know, the Bible didn't say that we were to disengage from the culture. That was not John's intent. That's not what Jesus taught. In fact, Jesus said, we are a fellowship. So I guess it's important that we understand what the word fellowship means. You know, when we talk to different churches and different church leaders, even different parishioners, and we throw the word fellowship on the table, everybody has a definition for it. And we don't all agree. For some, it means a place. It means a building or a room, because that's where we go for fellowship. Some places even call it a fellowship hall. For some people, it's a potluck dinner. Come back next week, because we're going to have a fellowship event in the afternoon. I don't do that, by the way. I don't even know what you're doing here, but I, I just use that as an example. Are you having a potluck next week? No. See, I, that, I don't want anybody to think, Bob, I was making an announcement for you. Fellowship means a lot of things to a lot of different churches, but what you think fellowship is, you know, I don't really care about any more than you should care what I think fellowship is, because the only one whose opinion matters is what God thinks fellowship is. And fellowship in the New Testament is, is defined in two different ways. In fact, there are two Greek words, both translated fellowship into the English language. One is koinonia, and that's the one most of us are familiar with. And it simply means that you and somebody else share something in common. Now, if there are is there any Dodger fan in the room besides me? All right, Bob, Pastor Bob, our brother, how come you got... See, you talk about being marginalized, dude. You're in the back. The other Dodger fan is in the other corner. Okay. You know what? Koinonia simply means we have something in common with somebody else. What is your name, sir? David and Bob and I have koinonia. You say, I thought that was a spiritual word. Well, being a Dodger fan is a spiritual experience. But, especially this season, but it doesn't have to be a spiritual word or it doesn't have to contain a spiritual idea. It just talks about that we have something in common. So when we talk about the church being a fellowship, it means that we have something what? Something in common. Now, there's another word in the Greek that is translated fellowship. It's metike, and that refers to a partnership. That is what we work on together. So the fact that we are a fellowship means that we have something in common and we're working on something together. I think that's why the church has defaulted to the idea of koinonia and kind of taken the idea of fellowship way out of balance because we just want to talk about what we share together and we share our faith. So we come together and talk about how great it is to be a Christian. What we need to do is kind of lean the other way and understand that Medicaid talks about our mission, the mission that we share together, and it is very unique, at least according to the Apostle John. Here's one thing that we have in common. You can fill in some blanks if you want to. I think you have a copy of the notes, and you can uh, kind of track with us this evening. First of all, we share the responsibility to declare a truthful message. You know, the gospel is not something that I am obligated to share alone at High Desert Church or that Bob is obligated to declare 
by himself as the pastor, as the leader of this congregation to those who might come into this auditorium. Are you part of the fellowship? Well, yeah. Then you have as much of an obligation to declare a truthful message than I do. We share that because that's our mission that we share in this fellowship. Here John is identifying what he knows about Jesus. And in verse 1 he says this. In verse 1 he says, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked at, our hands touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Really four things there in that verse. First of all he says, I want to tell you what I know about Jesus, and what I know about Jesus is not based on a recent conversation. I want you guys to know, man, I was involved from the beginning of his earthly ministry. I was one of the first guys that he called to follow him. I'm not a bandwagon guy. I don't just wait to see if it's popular and then jump on board. You know, I'm I'm not... (laughs) I'm not rooting for a team just because it's in the playoffs. I mean, I've been in this deal with Jesus from the beginning. And and then he said, and I heard what he said. I heard what Jesus taught. And, And not only that, but we saw the way he lived. See, he's building here because the intensity is growing. We are conditioned, as every generation is conditioned, to question what you hear. And so the fact that Jesus said it is not as significant as the fact that Jesus lived it. He said we heard it and we saw it firsthand from the beginning. And then he says, and we also watched him and touched him. Now that word theomai, which is translated watched, means in our vernacular to stalk to gaze on for a long time. In other words, the fellas, the twelve, evidently they had conversations like this. You know, I I want you guys to to really watch Jesus like I'm going to watch Jesus for the next few weeks. Because I want to see if there are any holes in the way he lives his life. I want to know, we want to know if what he says is what he lives. If, If what his he, he talks a big game, but does he walk the same game? And John said, you guys, I mean, from the beginning, I heard him, I saw him, and I watched him. I gazed at him. We studied him and even groped him. And that might sound kind of weird, but that's what the word translated touched means. It was used to describe a blind man who would kind of feel his way along so he could get direction as to where to go. You know, I live my life by the smartest guy I know philosophy. My wife and I have a doctor actually teaches at Ohio State. I know we got at least one huge Ohio State fan here. And uh, he te- he's, t- he's head of pediatrics at Ohio State University Medical Center. And we know a lot of doctors. And I'm not saying he is the smartest doctor we know. I'm just saying we think he is. So whenever we have a question, we hear a lot of different medical opinions about what to do, whether it's for our kids or for our grandkids. 
In fact, our daughter asked a question, you know, about a year ago about some kind of vaccination, and she said, I've gone online, I've got all these conflicting opinions about whether it's a good idea or not. I said, well, let me just call the smartest guy we know. And he told us what to do, and we did it. I mean, that's just the way we live. We're not that smart. We need help in everything. But you know, the smartest doctor we know is not necessarily the smartest financial guy we know. So we got another smart guy when it comes to finances. We got a question about money. Call him up. Say, hey, you know, we're thinking about an investment. We're thinking about, you know, a tax question or something. We'll call him. Now, there are a lot of people in our ministry. We've got a lot of people in our church. They're probably pretty good, but he's the best we know. Yeah, it's just an example. When it comes to who Jesus is, the smartest guy I know is John. Now, I'm not going to, you know, necessarily follow his advice when it comes to medicine or when it comes to finance. But when it comes to knowing Jesus, I don't know anybody that's got a better testimony than him. And, you know, you guys know Jesus. How many of you guys know Jesus? Raise your hand. All right, put your hand down. You know, and I, I would love to believe what you say, and, and I, I probably would because I, I'm, I think you would be sincere. And I know a lot more people than represented in this room who know Jesus. But none of us were in it from the beginning. 1962, when I met Christ, that's 1962 years later. <laughs> I, I, I've read what Jesus said, but I never heard him say it. I've read how he lived his life, but I never saw him live it. I've never had the opportunity to stalk him or touch him. But John did. I believe him. So you have an opinion about Jesus. I always laugh when people come up and they say, well, I don't think Jesus is who he claimed to be. <laughs> okay. Well, does that bother you? It doesn't bother me at all because you're not the smartest guy I know when it comes to who Jesus is. <laughs> you know what Jesus is essentially saying? He's saying this. He's saying, listen, you guys, we lived with this guy for three, over three years. And, and we didn't like go to a monthly mentor group meeting. We didn't like clock in at 8, clock out at 5, five days a week. We lived with him 24-7 for three and a half years. That's 1,300 straight days. And I'm telling you, it wasn't normal. Uh, when, when he taught, it's just weird. He spoke with more authority than anybody we've ever heard. Whatever he said penetrated deep into your soul. When he, when he laughed, he laughed like one who didn't have a care in the world. When he talked about forgiveness, it was as if the burden for the entire world rested solely on his shoulders. I took care of his mom after he was executed because he asked me to. And she and I would stay up many nights late into the evening, hours on end, talking about him. And you know what she told me? She told me that he was always that way. In fact, she told me, and I believe her because she had no reason to lie to me, especially this late in the game, that she was a virgin until after he was born. For a while, she thought she was hearing voices. And then she recognized that she was right smack dab in the middle of this divine conspiracy to save mankind from our sin. She maintained that until she breathed her last. But you know, I really didn't even need her confirmation because the night that Jairus and his dead daughter 
were in the room with Jesus, I was there. James, Peter, and me. When Jesus said, little girl, get up. And she did. That night he talked to Nicodemus about who was going to get into heaven and who was not going to be allowed. That conversation actually took place in my living room. When he fed thousands with a boxed lunch. The day he turned that water into the most delicious wine I, I have ever tasted. When, when he raised our friend Lazarus, who had been dead for three days. I mean, the dude just stunk. And he came walking out of that grave because Jesus said, come forth. I was there for all of those and more. I stood at the foot of the cross the night he was brutally killed when he couldn't help but show compassion to the people who were right at that very minute mocking him because he couldn't save himself. I helped pull his body off the cross and carry it to the tomb. I helped lay his body in the tomb. I watched them myself as they rolled that stone in front of the grave and then three days later when I went back to pay my respects I looked at that same stone that must have weighed I don't know what two tons it was sitting on the other side of the garden as if somebody had picked it up and thrown it over there and I was there a few days later when he showed up for breakfast and the fellows and I we thought we were seeing a ghost until we hugged him, until he said, put your hands in the holes that the nails made in mine. We actually, and this is going to sound weird, we actually all lined up to stick our hand in his side where he had been speared by that soldier. You want to know about Jesus? You come to Papa. You know, Jesus never aspired to a political office, yet he was more influential than anyone in Israel. He never even thought about putting together an army, but if he had, he could have marched on Rome, and I'm telling you, he would have won. And so all you armchair quarterbacks out there, all of you university professors who have the audacity to stand up there in front of those students and tell them that you know better than I do who this guy is, this is not a schoolgirl crush that I'm feeling here. I'm telling you, Jesus was one of a kind. And that day when he came up the shore of Galilee and the fellows and I are fishing, and he gave us that smirk that we saw many times after that, and he said, you guys like to fish for fish, don't you? And we all said yes. And then that gaze, he looked at us and he said, if you follow me, we'll change the world. And we dropped everything. And we followed him. And we never regretted it. Only our Messiah could have done what he did. So don't tell me he wasn't real, because he was more than real. And don't tell me he wasn't God. Because I know better. John knew who Jesus was. 
And if you know who Jesus is, then you have an experience much like verse 2 will reflect. Look at verse 2. The life appeared. We've seen it testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Do you remember the day Jesus appeared to you? I, you know, April 2nd, 1962. That was mine. I was a seven-year-old kid. I was raised in a ministry family. I was sitting in the back row of an auditorium much like this, although they had pews. And, and I, I, my dad was in ministry. He wasn't the one speaking that night, but he was on the staff of the church. And I was right back there in the back row, and I was sitting there next to my mom, and I had heard about Jesus for every day I think I had been alive up to that point. I had been singing about him. I had heard all the stories. It wasn't, you know, PowerPoint and video. It was a flannel graph board. But, I mean, the point came across, and I felt like I knew the guy. But that night I realized I didn't. And I don't know what it was about the message that night. It was no different, really, than probably a dozen other messages I had heard, you know, trying to, you know, color on a piece of paper with a couple of crayons that I'd always bring into the church service because I was bored. But that night I put them down. And my mother was probably taken aback because I sat up tall and I listened to the pastor talk about going to heaven or going to hell. And that night, Jesus appeared to me. And that night, I gave my life to Christ. Because he said, you know what he said to me? He said, Tommy, I was seven, so that was okay. Follow me, and we'll change the world. And I didn't have nets in my hand, but I had crayons. And, and you know what John says? He, he says, what we have seen, we testify to it. And that's the thing about being a believer. After he appears to you, it's time to testify. That's always been his M.O. A few minutes ago I said, do you know Christ? You all raised your hand, or at least most of you raised your hand. That means at some point you had your April 2nd, 1962 experience where you had heard about Jesus a thousand times, but that night he looked at you and he said, follow me, and you did. And from that day forward, it was time to what? It was time to testify. And verse 3 says, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard. We proclaim it so you can have fellowship with us. See, you know, remember what fellowship means? It's what we work on together. We've all seen him. All right, we don't know him as well as John does, but man, that's why we have his testimony, his firsthand testimony. It just affirms what we already know is true because we saw him ourselves. And now what we have seen and what we have heard, now we have this fellowship with John, and our fellowship certainly is with the Father and the Son, and now we share fellowship with you to make our joy complete. God designed the plan of redemption. The reason he came to this planet, to be viral. It doesn't go from church to church, from stage to stage, from pulpit to pulpit. It goes from person to person, much like the common cold. 
and you catch it from each other. Being a witness for Christ is not something we do. It's something we are. And I'll tell you, when I read 1 John 1, 1, I, I, I hear John and I'm thinking, he is so, I mean, this guy is like so jacked up about declaring this testimony. It is such hot news, he can't help but share it with somebody. And that, that's how it, it needs to be for us. But somewhere along the way, we thought fellowship was just for us. And John says, we want you to know this truth so that you can join the fellowship. Well, not only declaring it is important, um, demonstrating that message is also important because it makes it clear. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. We talk about declaring what we have seen and heard from Christ, but also demonstrating. Declaring it is what we say. Demonstrating is what we live. Remember what John said? He not only heard it from Jesus, but he saw it. And when people line up around us as God supernaturally and strategically places these people around us, if they hear something that they don't see, it brings confusion. There's that incongruity with our testimony. Because our walk doesn't match our talk. And, and when we declare, you know, we try to be on point because we went to the class where we learned how to witness. But how do you live? See, light brings clarity. We could turn the lights off and here even dim them and things would be less clear. We turn on the light and things become more clear. What's going on in the room might not even change. But the perception will be absolutely different because it'll be more clear. Look at verse 5, all the way down through 7. And this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, see? Now we're not just talking about what light does, but where light shines, in God there is no darkness at all. And if we claim that we have fellowship with Him, watch this, if we declare that we have fellowship with Him, yet the way we walk is in the darkness, we're liars. Now He doesn't say we're mistaken. He doesn't try to soft-pedal it. He doesn't say, okay, we're a little confused. He says we're liars. Now some of you, I'm going to guess, because it's a pretty... Good group. Way to go. Props to you, Saturday night. Some of you guys claim to be Christ followers, but the way you live your lives at school, the way you live your lives at work, there's that inconsistency. Now, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but I'm saying there are some who aren't. And you know what the Apostle John did? He just called you out. He called you out. You see, we cannot be successful in our mission and operate in darkness. We can't. We need light. And, and that's what light does. It, it doesn't mean we don't sin. I mean, I, you know, Bob, I, Bob's been a Christian ever since I, I've known Bob. But I also know he's a sinner. I could tell you, I could tell you some sinful stories, but I won't. 
Everybody has those things in their lives. Maybe we don't have to think back 30 years. Maybe we just think back to this afternoon and we say, boy, we failed God. But that doesn't mean you're living in darkness. It means you made a mistake. And the reason that you're feeling badly is because you live in the light. You see, when you go into a dark room, if you live in darkness, you can trip over, let's say, a coffee table in the middle of the room, and you might actually you know, say some things that you wouldn't want uh, repeated about the table in the middle of the room, but I mean, it's not your fault because you're in darkness, right? You don't feel stupid, you just feel pain. But turn on the light. Have you ever tripped over something in the light? There is a rocking chair in our master bedroom that when I go to open the blinds so that the plant can get more light, invariably I stub my toe on that thing. And the lights are on. And I, I feel pain, but I also feel stupid. Just so dumb. I look down and I say, how did I do that again? You know what that, that's like? Making a mistake as a believer. Christian sin. And when we do, we feel stupid. See, if you sin and you don't feel badly about it, you're living in the darkness. And if you claim to be a Christian, you're lying. But if you sin and you're living in the light, which means you know it's sin and you're feeling badly about it because the Holy Spirit, who is present in your heart, is convicting you, that is a very good sign. And what the Holy Spirit would tell you tonight is, don't be stupid again. But again, back to the point. Living in light is a characteristic of being a Christian, especially with the mission that we share together. And even though everybody struggles, we still live in light. And we want to learn how to operate more effectively in the light so that we can better demonstrate our faith by the way we live. To declare our faith and to demonstrate it. Now, who do you demonstrate your faith for? Not me. I don't even know you. How you live your life is a mystery to me. I'm assuming it's probably pretty good because you come to this wonderful church. There may be some liars in the crowd, but I would say most of you are probably, you know, just doing the best you can, trying to be a a faithful follower of Christ. But you're not demonstrating your faith to me because I live a thousand miles away from here. But God has given you 8 to 15 people strategically your oikos. Those people not only hear what you say, but they watch a demonstration every day. When Christians are asked how they came to faith, they claim it was primarily through an oikos relationship, and I'll just do this real quick because I know our time is done, and I'm almost done, so take heart. But how many of you came to faith in Christ and you would say that the main reason or the primary factor that brought you to faith in Christ was someone in your oikos, someone in your relational world, either a parent or a friend or a brother or a sister, a co-worker invited you, shared with you, and you would say it is a, one of those key relationships, those regular relationships that I had that brought me to faith in Christ. Raise your hand real high. Okay, look around the room. Keep your hands up. Look around the room. 
Because every time I ask the question, at least 90%, and that looks like we're pretty close to that, maybe a little over 90% in here, 90% of the people come to faith through an oikos relationship. You know why you came to Christ through an oikos relationship? Because of the faith demonstration that you saw in their lives. They weren't perfect. They stumbled, but they lived in light. And so it should shock us like not at all when we hear that after healing the demon-possessed man, Jesus said, go home to your oikos and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And when Zacchaeus was converted, Jesus said, today salvation has come to this oikos. And when he healed the son of that politician, it says that he and all of his oikos believed. And we could look verse by verse throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts and even the epistles at how this was always the primary building block for the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to know that oikos is not new here because most of you raised your hand a second ago, which means oikos is alive and well at Gateway Church. And you know what, you guys? It's alive and well in every church in every generation throughout history. We are not introducing an idea over the next month. We are accelerating it by helping you recognize who is in your group, how you can better prepare yourself to reach out to that group, not just by what you declare, but by your faith that will be demonstrated and will create this enlightened environment for those conversations to take place. Has God brought you a message? Has God changed your life? Has He appeared to you? Then it's time to testify. I would never say the Christian life is easy, but it's very simple. Get saved and go home. Go home to your oikos and let them see the difference that Jesus has made in your life. And you know, one of the most famous books of the New Testament, 1 John, begins with the idea of this mission that we share. That's the fellowship. Let's bow for a word of prayer.